everyone. Welcome to this special ORG uh, Strategic Peace Building uh, Program podcast on Yemen. ORG is a London-based independent organization that has been influential for nearly four decades in pioneering new and more strategic approaches to security and peace building. Uh, I am Marwa Baba, the head of the Strategic Peace Building Program. And in this op- episode, we'll be joined by uh, Nedwood Dawsari and Fatma Al-Ashrar, um, of the Middle East uh, Institute, um, and I'll leave it to them to introduce themselves more and tell us more about what they are doing. Okay, um, well, thank you for having me. I'm Nadwa Dawsari. I uh, am a Yemeni uh, analyst, and I have uh, 20 years of field experience in Yemen, mostly doing uh, development and conflict resolution programs, but also I've been involved in advocacy um, for Yemen policy in the U.S. and Europe uh, since 2012. Happy to be here. Happy to have you, Nedwa. Hi, I am Fatima Abul Asrar. I'm a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. I'm Yemeni-American and have also specialized in Yemen for um, over over 15 years, uh, doing field work and conflict analysis and peace building. Uh, my interests are in the um, ideological roots of the Houthi movement, their Shia transnational networks, and uh, development and human rights in Yemen. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining uh, us. Uh uh, Fatma and Nedwa. So today we will be trying to uh, discuss five myths about um, the Yemen conflict. So five years in, and there are a couple of things that I, uh, that, um, I think be interesting for us to shed the light on and and try and address how, to what extent those statements true or false, and what are the underlying discussions that should be had. Um, as part of as part of these five um, misconceptions or myths about Yemen, uh, Yemen's conflict. So the first one is, um, you know, as the you know people call it the anniversary or like five years into Yemen's conflict now. Uh, the 26th of March is when we are recording this uh, this podcast, and 26th of March is regarded as the day of. Um, the start of Yemen, uh, the Yemeni conflict um, by many analysts and uh, followers of the Yemen conflict. However, the 26th of, uh, of uh, March is the start of the Saudi-led coalition campaign on Yemen. So um, I'll leave it to both of you to clear this up for, for us and tell us whether um, the conflict actually started on the 26th um, of, of March uh, 2015 in Yemen or not. Uh, okay, I'm gonna. That's a that's a good question. Um, I think for Yemeni locals, this conflict has started when the government was challenged, when the government was overthrown. So, it, and that precisely happened in September 2014, when the Houthi militias decided to enter the capital of Yemen, Sana'a and overthrow the government. Uh, it's interesting, one of my friends was telling me we, they were watching the events unfold on TV and they were just looking at Al Jazeera and CNN's coverage, you know, in their own cities. 
And uh, he said to me, I realized that Yemen has changed that day when I woke up, went to go to work. I understood that the Houthi militia took over when I saw a 10-year-old at the checkpoint stopping a line of cars and asking them, where are they going? You know, so suddenly the police establishment is not there and there is just this this um, uh, population of uh, young child soldiers and uh, people without any military uniforms uh, who are carrying guns and uh, um, imposing their will on a very urban city like Sana'a. That was um, that was just the reality check for many people that that day, and you know the fact that there was no one of the most significant things is that there was no resistance, big resistance to the Houthi incursions to Sana'a, and the reason for that is tied so much with the um, Yemen youth uprising you know, the Arab Spring wave that that the region experienced in 2010 and 2011. And, uh, you know, in, in at that time frame, uh, the big achievement was, was overthrowing Ali Abdullah Saleh, the president who was there for 30 years. And uh, there were just hopes that the situation the situation of the country is going to radically change uh, to become more democratic. So what we see right now, uh, you know, the, the new bitter reality is that the situation became more theocratic than democratic. And uh, that was not in the calculation of the young uh, population that protested at that time. Um, between 2000 11 to 2013 was a period of transition. 2013 saw a conference that encompassed many diverse partners in Yemen's la- political landscape, including Houthi representation. But before, before the constitution was endorsed, before the new constitution was endorsed, the Houthis took it upon themselves to impose themselves as the guardians of, of this country. This is this did not come democratically, did not come by invitation from anybody. And it came by, you know, their their grandiose aspirations to control the country and definitely an, an Iranian vision that had helped them um, uh, that, that just saw that with having actors in all over the region is something that would elevate the Iranian regime's status. So. Uh, the Houthis did not skip a beat and seized an opportunity that was there when there was no national army, there was no strong national army, because all of that was supposed to be built up during the transition. Um, so uh, this is this is the reality. Um, they're not de facto governan- governance, governors of anything. They are just a, um, a self-serving small group that has a lot of power and a lot of weapons and significant strategic regional backing. And, and that's the reality. Thank you, Fatma. Um, Nedwa, I'd, I like following um, Fatma's comment. 
how important is uh, it uh, is it to actually identify the kind of almost um, the dates and the exact events that led us to where we are today uh, in Yemen um, uh, instead of just uh, viewing the campaign as the start of, of the of the conflict, especially um, how does not doing that directly affect uh, Yemenis who are living in the country at the moment? It, it, it does uh, significantly because, um, and I remember in 2014, 15 in particular, after the Saudi-led coalition um, uh, military intervention started, that's then when the war in Yemen has received um, a lot of international attention. Uh, the problem with with this notion that the war started in, in March 2015 is that it completely dismisses the nature of this conflict. And it looks at the conflict as a Saudi war on Yemen, either it's a Saudi war on Yemen, which it's not, or it's a proxy war between Iran and, and, and Saudis, which also is not entirely true. Um, the, the war in Yemen as Fatima stated, uh, started when the government was overthrown in Sana'a and uh, when the state collapsed, uh, which is uh, around that uh, time too. Uh, for people to not recognize that, and I am one of the people who had a really difficult time. I remember back in 2015 and 16, I was part of a lot of uh, events and seminars and conferences and meetings on Yemen in, in Washington, D.C. and in Europe. And I had a hard time convincing people that the war started in September. Everybody does. Everybody didn't want to see that. Um, and it was quite frustrating uh, for people not not to see anything before March 2015. It's shocking because you neglect the entire local aspect of the conflict, which is what the conflict is, is about. Uh, what happened after 2000, uh, after March 2015, uh, added to the conflict, maybe made the conflict a little more um, uh, regional, but the conflict still remains local um, to the core. You know, I, it's that's so true. You know, one of the things that was completely unexpected was a Houthi Saleh alliance. So you've had a successful transition when 2011 ousted President Ali Abdullah Saleh, and then you know, which ironically had fought the Houthis or the Houthis had fought him for almost a decade and tried to um, oust him. And, and Saleh had killed the, the leader of the Houthi movement. So to see this alliance uh, come about was also something that the international community did not see, right? Like I... Yeah. I it, it took a while to uh, uh, to see this 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 you know very unusual bizarre thing and then that that same alliance you know the the parties turned against each other in in 2017 and the Houthis killed Ali Abdullah Saleh and that brought even just more opposition to the Houthi movement so. If you look on the ground and if you talk to the, the local parties on the ground and even civilians and even those who supported the Houthis at one point or another, they feel that this movement is not what it said it was. 
because they came in with a banner of fighting corruption and doing the right thing. But in, with, the, with, with their idea of doing the right thing, they have been just so focused on the regional intervention, um, have failed uh, in striking alliances with a lot of parties, and their idea of alliance is brutality. They've brutalized many uh, uh, if the strong leaderships in the Islah party, which is, you know, somewhat aligned with, with the Islamist uh, Muslim Brotherhood, the same with Congress, Republic, uh, the Congressional um, People, General People's Congress party, which was, which belonged to Saleh, same with the Socialists, same with the Nasserites, same, I mean, I, I just can't see either tribal alliances or political alliances that feel anything towards this movement. So, you know, at its core, this group is really exclusionary. Yeah, and then, yeah that's, that's just quite, quite concerning. Um, I mean, to that point, I remember um, during the 2011 revolution and how everyone was sympathizing towards the Houthis, especially after the six wars and not knowing what was exactly going, uh, you know, on in Saada between the, uh, you know, the uh, Saleh's government and the the Houthis during the six wars uh, prior to the revolution. So they they attracted lots of uh, of sympathy from the general uh, public in, in Yemen and especially within the revolutionists. Uh, youth um, and that kind of also fueled a lot of the analysis uh, that later ca- that came in a later stage which is our second myth around Houthis, Houthis are now perceived as a marginalized group so are they actually a marginalized group and so how, do, how and how do you see that, um, their role uh, and the analysis that they are yeah, the Houthis are more of an extremist group than a marginalized group I think the reference should be given to the area of Sa'da that uh, they live in, because uh, it, it the area itself Sa'da was somewhat marginalized. You know, if you can think about it, for almost a millennia, uh, Yemen was ruled by an imamate who uh, was just had a, a theological imamate ruling the the country of Zaidi uh, sect, and the Zaidi sect is somewhat. It's somewhat aligned with the Shia sect. What's interesting is that for the longest time, while in Yemen, the Shia never really saw Zaydis as as Shia, and also the Sunnis don't see Zaydis as you know fully, fully, uh, fully Sunnis. So it it sits in the border between both, and um, um, especially that some of their their practices are closer to the Ismaili practices. However. Um, one of the one of the aspects uh, here and in here is that because of the Zaydis, because the Zaydis has governed for for a, a long time, after the revolution in 1962 um, and, and the war that lasted between 1962 and 1968 between the theological imams and the the Zaydi um, imams. And 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 the, the the revolutionaries who wanted to see a new different system uh, for Yemen, um, that fight became called the Yemen Republic. Because of that, these areas and and the people who felt that they've governed Yemen for a very long time were no longer governing. 
and they felt that they fell the furthest. So all of the privileges that were given to them before, the economic privileges, the educational privileges, the academic privileges even, were, were no longer exclusively theirs. And they saw themselves marginalized as, as in that they, they, felt, they felt entitled. They felt that this should be their own, their own right and that this right is being taken away from them. So that, that was a factor. You know, it's just perception is, is a key factor here. Of course, Yemen across the board is, it has just poor economic conditions. Um, um, and, you know, I, I think that there's a factor too with, with the government prioritizing, you know, health and economic services, et cetera, to uh, areas that are closer to the capital rather than areas up, up in the north bordering Saudi Arabia. And I think all of that played a factor. The other thing that contributed to this sense of marginalization um, that, that they talk about is is the establishment of the Institute of the Maj in at, at the end of the 17 in 1979, which is a Salafi institute that the Saudi kingdom has somewhat sponsored, and that was too close. It was it was it was in Sada. It was too close to the Zaidi uh, um, home, and you know many many Zaidis saw a lot of conversions from Zaidis to to Sunnis. Uh, and that raised an alarm for them. Should it have raised an alarm enough for a rebellion? I don't think so, because there were also active Zaidi movements that were trying to bring back the Zaidi faith. So, um, and there are other Zaidi movements that also believe that you know you should you should educate uh, people about you know how to choose their faith rather than carry arm and violently rebel and when the case is just quite religious like this and and we saw this with the establishment of the shabab al-mu'min in uh, in Yemen which which ironically had Hussein Badruddin al-Houthi as one of its co-founders uh, but but he had disagreed with the rest of the uh, of the founders of this of this movement uh, and decided to take, uh, decided to have just a broader vision and and just galvanize all of that, all of that, all of these feelings of self-perceived marginalization and um, religious uh, uh, marginalization as well into into militancy. Nadua, yeah. like I, yeah. I see you like waiting to to intervene. So yeah, yeah. No, so I I think there are, there are some things that are confused when people talk about Houthis marginalization. Uh, people tend to think that Houthis are a representation of the Zaydis, and they're not. Um, Saleh was a Zaydi, Ali Mohsen is a Zaydi. A lot of the people in, in that are fighting the Houthis now are Zaydis. Um, and Ali Mohsen so, is the vice president. So. Ali Mohsen is the vice president. Uh, a lot of the commanders, the people uh, that are fighting the Houthis now and leading the fight against the Houthis are Zaydis. Um, I think this this is not like a this is not uh, Houthis did not launch this war because they're marginalized, just like people in Hodeida or Taiz or the South were marginalized. This is part of the ancient power struggle among the northern political elite. Um, when, like Fatma explained, 
when the imams were pushed out uh, in 1962, um, the, the Hashemites, the Sayyids, uh, the people who have had, monop had mon monopoly over uh, you, you know, power in Yemen for centuries, um, they felt that their God-given uh, right, divine right to rule, was taken away from them. Um, they felt entitled, uh, like Fatima said. And so that's the grievance that they're talking about, uh, even though it doesn't come out clear when they talk about it, but it, it, it is, that is their uh, alleged grievance. Um, and the Hashemites were not marginalized. They were part of government institutions. They were senior military commanders. They were ministers. They were in the parliament. Um, even though they're a small minority of the population, probably 5%, uh, they still had a representation in every government institution. They were definitely not as marginalized as people from Taiz or the South or, or, or Tehama. Um, so I think this whole uh, grievance um, claim is, is basically something that they use to feel sympathy, to, to, to garner sympathy from outsiders who, because they don't understand the situation in Yemen. They don't understand the complexity of the issues. And they have an inherited, uh, you know, uh, uh, despise for Saudi Arabia. They automatically also uh, um, sympathize with the Houthis and kind of buy into this whole, you know, grievances. Um, I, I think it's 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 legitimate to say that the way Saleh dealt with the Saudi wars um, was contributed to this, uh, but it's not the whole story. Also, the story of of uh, of the the Salafis in Saudi and the way they were planted there, uh, yes, that contributed, but also again, that's not the whole story. And I think it's it's very important to understand that. These are an extension of a political elite that had have had mon monopoly over power and resources in Yemen uh, for a thousand years, um, and now they just want to come back uh, and reclaim their 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 you know perceived right uh, to rule over Yemenis. When you listen to their speeches, when you listen to their statements, when you listen to Abdel Malik Al Houthi when he comes out and give his like speeches, you know, every now and then. Um, you can hear it. You can hear it. Um, you know, um, they talk about wilaya, which is which is the the divine right of the the prophet descendants to rule. Um, they their 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 discourse is heavily, um, you know, focused on wilaya. Their the the cultural courses now that they force teachers and students and uh, and use it to recruit children to fight. It's heavily. Um, focused on wilaya, which is the right, uh, which is Abdel Malik Al Houthi and his dynasty's right to rule, um, and and that's that's something that Yemenis won't subscribe to, and won't accept. And it's um it's 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 good that you've both mentioned the um the notion that there are also other marginalized governorates or areas or groups within Yemen uh, that have been struggling and, and currently like continue struggling as part of this conflict. So uh, can we shed the light a little bit on who are the key actors on this conflict? Because the sense that uh, the conflict actors in Yemen are and, and the Yemen is, is, is a proxy war is kind of also 
as you as you rightly mentioned, Nedua, is not the full picture and is not fully true. So um, would you like to address that? Okay, so um, again, I think you know what's what's been happening. What's been happening? What's been happening since 2014? Um, what's happened after Saleh was pushed out of power, uh, in particular in, in 2011? Um, Saleh was pushed out of, out of power. He was not happy about it. Um, he felt it was uh, it was it was unfair. Uh, for his former allies, which is Islah and Ali Muhsin and Ahmars, to back the youth uprising um, and take advantage of the the transition, the, the the Gulf Cooperation Council (GCC) initiative, which is the transition deal, um, to push him out of power and then become more influential than he was, um, and so he aligned with the Houthis. Um, the Houthis feel that they were pushed out of power in 1962 um, and they align with Saleh because they also um, they also want to uh, avenge the uh, just like Saleh they share the same thing they wanted to avenge what Islah and Ali Muhsin did to them because Islah and Ali Muhsin were involved in the Saada wars and this is all elite politics elite struggle power struggle elite fights um, the rest of Yemen was part of the 2011 uprising, uh, but they were marginalized by the 2012 GCC initiative because what the 2012 GCC initiative did is it, it, it recycled the political elite. Um, the same people who were influential around Saleh, Ali Muhsin, and Ahmar San, Islah, they, they became the major beneficiaries of, of the transition deal. Yes, there was a there was a national dialogue conference, but you know, um, and there were a lot of great young Yemenis and from all of from all over Yemen, from all the governments who participated in the national dialogue conference. Um, but it was happening in a hotel, and then, uh, the 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 elite were still dictating what's going to happen. They did not support that conference, even though they sent delegates, but they were not committed to the outcome of the conference um, in a real sense. So what happened is when it was Saleh was pushed out of power, Islah and Ali Muhsin and Ahmers took, uh, became more influential in 2012. In 2014, Saleh aligned with the Houthis and they overthrew Hadi along with Ali Muhsin and the Islah and, and, and Al-Ahmars, and then they became Houthis and Saleh. So it's all these elite uh, elites. And then what happened is that Saleh and the Houthis launched a war uh, against the rest of Yemen. So they reinvaded Aden, um, they invaded Ta'iz, they invaded Baida, they invaded uh, other areas, and they caused a lot of destruction. They basically dragged the country into a civil war. And if you look, the major uh, um, the people who were uh, affected most by this war, um, the South was affected most, Taiz was affected most. Uh, the city has been under siege by the Houthis since 2015. Jauf has just been reinvaded again by the Houthis. Uh, Al-Bayda has been struggling for like uh, almost, you know, for five and a half years now since the Houthis invaded Baida. They've been, you know, committing a lot of atrocities in the areas uh, they control. These are the people um, who are affected most by the conflict, but they're not part of anything. They're not part of the UN peace negotiations. Um, and 
they are rarely covered in international media. They're rarely, you know, looked at by outside most Yemen analysts, most Western Yemen analysts who like to focus on, you know, the regional aspect of the conflict or to the extent of even romanticizing with the Houthis. And one of the other myths also is that they say Houthis marched um, towards Sana'a because of government corruption, which is a total nonsense because Houthis started descending towards Sana'a when the National Dialogue Conference was happening. In, in, in 2013, they started descending from, from Sada towards Sana'a. And so the, 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 all the other actors in Yemen conflict are not really uh, are not really present in in most of the analyses on Yemen. The South people started talking about the South only when the STC uh, become strong became became strong a, a strong player and it, it it kicked the government out of Aden. Um, now people talk about the South and the South right to be represented in the in the talks and. It's it's striking that um, actors actors in Yemen uh, receive attention and um, only when they become violent. That's so uh, it, it's it's just it's um, you know this whole incentivizing of violence in the way people look at Yemen um, in the in the way people try to help Yemen even in, even the UN. Uh, sponsored uh, mediation also. It's the same thing. Now they recognize the 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 STC because STC became violent. Yeah, that's so. exactly. That's actually exactly what the STC did. They they realized that them not taking things by force has led to nowhere, absolutely nowhere. And and it's kind of like the reality, really. If if most nations are they are founded by force. So they thought, if if you're not hearing us, we're gonna make the type of noise that makes you hear us. But you know, I wanna I wanna just go back a bit to the idea of a proxy war, and I I want to say that it, this is something that Yemen and the Saudi found themselves entangled in because somebody has a strategy. The Islamic Republic has a strategy. It has implemented it in Iraq. It has implemented it in Syria. You know, it has implemented it in Lebanon. The situation in Yemen is absolutely no different. They have a strong local, you know, (laughs) Mad Max actor who is the Houthis, and they've benefited from uh, their experience in the Sada Wars, but they have definitely incentivized them. The Houthis are focused they are they don't talk about the government of yemen they talk about the saudis they talk about the americans guess who does that it's iran too you know even even in their treatment of the coronavirus right now and the way that they perceive it they're exactly copying iran's talking points which is this is something that is manufactured by the united states to kill the islamic ummah or like specifically you know, manufacture to target people in, in vulnerable situations. I mean, it's, it's just not helpful. The slogan of the movement uh, is completely Iranian-inspired, uh, uh, and the help that you know, the help that, that this movement gets uh, from Hezbollah, from Al-Hasht in, in Iraq, is something that we we should uh, calculate 
as we think about this conflict. I think part of the problem is we tend to think about the Saudi role so much and not understand why they're there. And we don't talk also about the Iranian role uh, out of politeness, it seems. You know, I think many of the of the analysts I see, they uh, roll their eyes when you speak about Iranian role because they feel that you're going to complicate the conflict if you bring in that element. I'm not I'm not saying bring in that element to the discussion or on the table, but I'm saying acknowledge, acknowledge their strategy and acknowledge how the strategy is hurting the local population, you know, how, how it continues to provoke the, not provoke the Houthis, but encourage the Houthis to do uh, what they want. And I think, I think the expansion that we see right now in Yemen after five years of conflict the Houthis have taken areas that that are close to the Saudis and to the government, areas that they know that the Saudis are going to attempt to take from them again, um, because they, they're completely focused on reaching all ports and seaports um, that would allow Iran to have leverage against the United States. We really have to, you know, y- Yemen is upon... In a in a broader struggle uh, between Iran and the United States, Saudi got entangled too. And you know, on on the on the anniversary of the Saudi intervention, we have to realize that Saudi Arabia intervened to mainly protect itself. You know, it's it's there's a concern that if you had let this Houthi group completely dominate Yemen's landscape. Um, with their weapons, with their with their might and support from Iran, uh, and with their alliance with Ali Abdullah Saleh, then Saudi would be under a real threat. And as we have seen, um, as this relationship between Iran and the Houthis have come to the fore recently, as as the Houthis call themselves part of the axis of resistance, Mihwar al Maqawama. And what is this axis of resistance against? The coalition. And they call it the coalition of evil, which is comprom- compromised of, of the Saudis, the Emiratis, and and the United States, and the United Kingdom as well. So they are part of a broader vision. And, and uh, in order to reach that vision, they have to subjugate the population. They have to brainwash the population. They have to say that that they're doing it by pushing theocracy basically as a mode of governance mm-hmm. and uh, you know by by making an enemy out of a powerful ally regional ally like a, like Saudi Arabia who has been pouring pouring i would say like billions of 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 funds into Yemen and billions of funds into you know a vicious cycles cycle of war um, that's this very interesting, and it, it also leads me to uh, to our uh, almost can't even remember now if it's the third or the fourth map, but I guess I think it's the fourth. Um, but I guess the idea that uh, Houthi-controlled areas within Yemen are currently safer than uh, the uh, areas of the uh, internationally re- uh, controlled by the internationally uh, uh, recognized government. So Nadua, tell me, <laughs> tell me what you think. Yeah, that's just uh, it's one of the statements 
that really, really make me angry. Um, I haven't been able to go back to Yemen for uh, almost six years now. Uh, I haven't seen my family for almost six years, and that's because if I go to Sana'a, the Houthis would abduct me and disappear me and probably do a lot mm, much worse things, much more worse things to me. Um, People who say that are either Westerners who had been to Sana'a through Houthi networks, and they go, and of course Houthis are, you know, very welcoming and, you know, um, and kind of charming, and they they roam around Sanaa and they see Sanaa safe. Of course, Sanaa's vibrant city. People are out there, and and Houthis manage to establish security, quote unquote, because they're the only force there. Um, but people are looking, um, you know, uh, over their shoulders all the time. Houthis um, can snatch you from your home anytime for simply a, a Facebook post. Uh, it happened with women, too. Now, Houthis have Zainabiyat, which is the, their women police force, which can invade and it had invaded homes um, and snatched disappear. Um, for the first time in Yemen, we see a group that disappear women on false charges of prostitution simply because of their political or perceived political Uh, activism, disappear them, rape them. I'm not saying that, Uh, 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 you know, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm quoting reports uh, from the UN panel of experts from other international organizations that have reported on these rape cases and and, and, uh, mass intimidation of society. In Houthi control areas, Houthis execute tribal leaders who refuse to recruit children for them. Uh, they snatch children from neighborhoods and send them to the front lines. Um, they uh, blow up houses of their opponents. Uh, they disapp- There are thousands of Yemenis that are disappeared in Houthi prisons, and hundreds of them have been tortured to death. Um, so you tell me if that's safe. Um, yes, in the South, maybe it's not safer in terms of, you know, you could be shot uh, by a random bullet. Um, there is some crime. Of course, there is some uh, uh, sometimes uh, it's some, some, you know, random crimes. But assassinations are, are a big thing now. Assass- so, yeah. Assassinations are against uh, security actors, certain political figures. Uh, but ordinary people are not under uh, threat like they are in, in Houthi control areas. And I, I'll allow Fatima to say more about this because it's just, it's just absurd that when thousands of Yemenis are being held and tortured and, and disappeared by the Houthis and women are being raped um, and that nobody can post anything, anything online um, and not face the severe consequences by the Houthis. And then you hear some analysts saying that Houthi control areas are safer. Um, and crime also happened in Houthi control areas. It's just nobody dares to report on them because if they do, they will, they will face, um, you know, severe punishment. So basically, if you are a person living in Yemen without uh, any political opinion, I mean, you have to strip yourself of any political opinion. And if you are a person who does not have um, children or, you know, men of age that could be recruited by the militia, 
And if you're a person who is okay with your um, uh, with the next generation being brainwashed by by the militia, and if you're a person who's going to report any uh, sympathies to the government to the militia promptly, then you have nothing to fear, and it's safe for you. It's unsafe for everybody else. Y- you basically have to be- become just one of their. You have to agree with them. Is is what I'm saying. You have to fully agree with the way that they're governing. You cannot criticize anything. So, so North. You know, basically Yemen's north right now is is as as free and stable as North Korea. Um, that's the only way I could, I could, I, you know, I could explain it to others. So, uh, take yeah, care. and you cannot, you cannot, you cannot protest uh, for your salary. Women who protested for their salaries were abducted and disappeared and labeled as prostitutes and raped. You cannot ask for services. You have to accept being uh, extorted as a business or small business. Um, you, you have to accept Houthis, you know, just um, coming to your shop and asking for, for, for money for their war efforts and you can't do anything about it or say anything about it. Um, I, and if you do that. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree. I actually, you know, wrote wrote a report about this um, for for Inside Arabia and for the Middle East Institute that I could share a link uh, with you um, on on this. But we've we've seen enough to understand that political opposition is really being targeted. That um, in in terms of the people who have been intimidated, were was just some women who protested the economic conditions in Yemen. And um, they were gathered up, uh, beat up, and it was just, it was brutal. And the thing I would like to emphasize is that Yemen was never, ever, ever like this. So Yemen six years ago was, you know, definitely not not the most secure country in the world, but, but there was a certain sense of safety and security, and especially for women, because the tribal code protected them, the traditions, the custom protected women. You know, people, people like Nedwa, like myself, like all of the Yemeni women activists that I know, were able to criticize the former state um, with confidence. We knew that there were enough uh, traditions embedded in the society that would prevent from our abuse. And to see the Houthis challenge long-held tribal and societal tradition, you know, this is making the entire situation completely unpredictable. It has never happened in the past, you know, 40 years in Yemen's history that that a woman is, is taken, you know, against her will and put in a private prison or, or raped. It's not, it's not something that we've ever heard about and if something that happened was was an extreme case and now this is becoming the norm it's becoming the reality that faces people so the yeah it's it's uh it's safe if you are a privileged person living there completely 
you know, carrying, carrying, uh, chanting their slogan and carrying their banner and living by their rules. Yep. And then, you know, yeah, then you're, you're great. And to be honest with you, even then, the, 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 the people that I saw turn against them were the people who immediately were recruited or, or forcibly recruited. So, um, uh, I think I think it, it, maybe what Nadwa and I are trying to say is it's propaganda. <laughs> Beware of this propaganda. Yeah. I, I, that's that's um, very interesting to hear, and I think it's it's important to highlight every time we talk about Yemen to make sure that we're not misrepresenting the fact and that we're not uh, necessarily. Uh, overlooking the local dynamics and that's one of the key issues that ORG is trying to to address through working with our local actors in in Hadramaut in Marib um, and in uh, Shabwa and Mahra those areas that have been neglected for so long um, and have been marginalized as you've rightly mentioned um, as the rest of uh, of the country and so for centralization so that leads me to the question or to the fifth myth of, uh, you know, would actually a peace deal between the Houthis and the internationally recognized government get us and, and bring peace into Yemen? And would it be sustainable? It would it would bring, you know, maybe um, it would bring an agreement. I keep telling people it would bring some type of an agreement. It would be some type of an exit of the current quagmire. But, um, uh, you know, you will have conflict in Yemen. You will have conflict in the same way that it's occurring right now and that doesn't generate headlines. So uh, the way I would say it is if the Saudis say, okay, we're going to go away because there's a peace deal between them and the Houthis and the government said, okay, we're going to have a power sharing agreement. What's going to happen is that everyone is going to hail this as a victory because the Saudis have left and there will be no other voices but the Houthis because they will dominate in any type of agreement. You know, they still have the weapons. Any type of agreement that does not allow, that does not um, mandate the Houthis to give up their medium and heavy weapons is basically a, a suicide uh it's not a. I mean, it's not suicide. It's it's a. It's 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 gonna it's gonna murder the rest of the Yemeni parties and and it's it's just not it's not a it's not something that that I feel confident about that would bring the stability needed for the country. Um, the Houthis have enough firepower and resources to subjugate the local population. So I and I think unfortunately. No one is in the international community is paying attention to the local parts of the conflict. So, you know, areas like Ma'rib and uh, like Jauf, let's say Jauf that, that recently was under attack by the Houthis and is now under their control. Um, and that did not generate a lot of, of press online. Uh, even when Houthis took Aden at the start of, of the war and the Saudis haven't intervened, there was, there was just one footnote and no one cared just everybody thought about it as a civil conflict so as long as the conflict remains among civil actor uh, uh, remains civil conflict the the more that we are at risk of not seeing yemen fulfill the the dream that that those protesters in the arab spring had you know back then 
Yeah, in in leading to to the idea of maybe at some point achieving an agreement, to what extent, Nedwa, you've you've been you've been talking about pockets of stability and making sure that we are including, you know, the the kind of local voices and ensuring that there are local dynamics kind of incorporated incorporated into the thinking of the of the international community when we think about peace in Yemen. So could you speak to that a little bit? I I think. People are talking about inclusivity, whether it's like, you know, adding more actors or women or youth or uh, and I, I, I really don't think that's the problem. I think that the whole peace uh, process is, is deeply flawed um, to start with. Just the naive, I think the assumption that the Houthis would, uh, if a, a political settlement is is you know is agreed upon between the Houthis and the government and the Saudis decide to go out, I think there is an assumption that the Houthis will 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 uh, will cease being violent. And I think that's extremely naive. The Houthis have signed a lot of agreements with a lot of local actors, um, including the Peace and Partnership Agreement that they forced the government to sign in 2014 before they and they they violated every agreement they signed with everybody whether it's tribes political actors um pretty much everybody the stockholm agreement they violated the stockholm agreement um they're not going to give in their violent ways voluntarily and i think a peace deal now with or an, an agreement now will will basically give them the political recognition that they want uh, without actually them earning that um, and it, it 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 does incentivize violence, incentivizes violence, and send a signal to the rest of the actors in Yemen, just like it did to the SDC, that if you're not violent, we're not going to even recognize you, we're not going to even look at you. Um, and um, and if the Houthis have the political recognition on top of all the weapons they have, um, then you know there is no end to what they can do. Um, they're not going to stop at anything uh, short of taking control of the rest of Yemen. Um, and no political agreement will, will stop them from, from doing that. We've, we've seen over the past five, six years that, um, that well, basically the international community has been pretty much soft on the Houthis. Um, and even when they're not soft, the Houthis just don't, don't really respond to any pressure from outside forces. The only pressure they respond to is force. Um, and so for any peace to happen in Yemen, Houthis will have to be pushed out uh, far enough militarily where they feel that they're vulnerable enough, that they're weak enough to come to concessions and accept some compromise uh, with other actors. Other than that, it's just, you know, it's just unrealistic to talk about peace just because, you know, there is a new government, 50% Houthis, 30%, I don't know who. Um, and, I, you know, there is there is hope and there's wishes and and there's also reality. And I think we, we need to look at reality um, and not let, you know, our aspirations and hopes and wishes for a peace in Yemen, uh, you know, make us uh, overlook these realities on the ground. Thank you, Nadua. And um, I didn't respond to your question. I'm sorry. Yes. About pockets of stability. So Marib now is a pocket of stability, but it's it's threatened by the Houthis. The Houthis could take Marib 
and turn it into a pocket of instability. And I think that's pretty much the last pocket of stability in the country uh, that, you know, um, I, I think yeah, I think right now the threat is is the Houthis take over Marib. If they take over Marib, it's not only that they're going to like destroy the last pocket of stability, but they also will push the government completely out. Marib is the last stronghold of the government. Um, and that will have um, that will have serious implications for peace in Yemen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and just the last point, because I think it's also when talking about all of this and the Houthis role um, versus everyone else, if if we are to have a meaningful a meaningful peace uh, process and a meaningful uh, kind of inclusive process, what would that look like in your opinion? Again, I, I think uh, an inclusive I think an inclusive process is is not going to achieve peace under the current circumstances. Mm-hmm. As long as the Houthis are militarily strong um, enough to keep pushing into other areas by force, just like they they did in in Jove, um, in you know early this month uh, and the month before, um, it doesn't matter how many actors you put around that table. They are on the ground. They have the upper hand militarily. They have the weapons. They have the means to subjugate anybody who is around that table. So I I I don't really think that inclusivity is the answer right now. Thank you, Nadwa. Um, Fatma, do you like to do you like to speak anything to that point? What I see is that local voices are not taken seriously. So you're in. You might be including local voices, but at the end, I think that the UN process is much more focused on getting the Houthis buy-in to the entire thing. Because I think the UN envoy feels that if he doesn't have the the blessings of this of this actor, then he can't get anything done. So the UN envoy has the government in the bag, the Yemeni government in the bag, he has the Saudis in the bag, he has the Emiratis in the bag, he has got activists and local actors in the bag in in terms of that they all have to agree with him, they all want peace. So what he concentrates most of his time on is talking to the bad guys, the Houthis, and, and, um, and getting agreements uh, from them that actually are translating into absolutely nothing. So they're saying yes to him, and, and that yes is considered an achievement. Does that translate on the ground? No, absolutely not. Um, they, they do things on their own timeline uh, and in the way that they want things to be done. So local actors are not really taken seriously in this peace process. The UN envoy might be listening to what these civil society actors are saying, what the political parties are saying, but at the end, he's much more interested in the Houthi rebels and the messages that they have to say. His entire calculation of how a peace process should work is that you should talk to the bad guys because you already have the good guys in the bag. So the, the bad guys are the Houthis who are continuously obstinate, who do not compromise 
And the the other guys, whether it's the activists, the local population, local, you know, the the uh, representatives representatives of the Yemeni government, and even the Saudis or the Emiratis are, and and the Americans and and the others are the ones that 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 are rational and that he could talk with, and these are the groups that could compromise, and you know, these are the groups that could respond to his pressure. If the problem for him is that if the Houthis say no to him, then he has nothing. He has achieved nothing. So I feel that the what has been happening in, in Yemen's peace process since this new UN envoy came along, who uh, is that there's so much focus on um, the 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 paperwork <laughs> on getting Houthis to say yes. And uh, not so much focus on the action and the implementation. So if Houthis say yes on a ceasefire in Hodeida, and then they don't stop the shooting, that's still considered a success because they just said yes to the ceasefire, even if they haven't implemented. And you know, this this is this is just becoming too recurrent um, to ignore. And the UN envoy really has got to change strategy because the UN is losing its credibility among a lot of actors. So, you know, this is exactly where I want to start with is if you're going to think about pocket of stability and then, you know, leave the, you sort of can't ignore some of the biggest offenders and some of the big violations that are really happening to the peace agreements that one is trying to to champion in Yemen. Uh, but I want to add to that. Um, when I said that inc inclusivity is not the answer, I didn't mean, so what I meant is that when, it seems to me when people talk about inclusivity, they more mean like legitimizing the process than actually, actually bringing the interests of these actors to the table. Um, I honestly don't think that the UN envoy can do anything about this conflict or force the Houthis or the government or the Saudis to stop the war. This is just beyond his ability. The risk comes when or if um, he kind of forced a political agreement that um, that leads to uh, legitimizing uh, the Houthis or other actors, uh, but mainly the Houthis because they're one of the main, uh, one or two main parties in, in the UN negotiations. The risk would be if he forces an agreement that ends up exacerbating current tensions and, and, and mm -hmm. grievances. I think local actors can be involved in, in the process, uh, and, but I don't think that this process as Given the the current situation on the ground and and the the balance of power, I don't think an agreement will bring peace. But I think the the UN envoy can help mitigate the impact of the conflict, and I think that should be his main focus, not a political settlement. And and local actors, other actors can can be part of that. So agreements to, for example. Uh, focus on things that would improve conditions for civilians or protect civilians. For example, agreements to like um, end the siege on Taiz, 
agreements to like ease um, or facilitate the entry of um, of humanitarian assistance uh, to to the population. Um, agreement to like open uh, Sanaa Airport. These things that will make the lives of Yemenis a tiny bit, you know, or better, even under under the conflict. Uh, but I think I think looking at a, a solution for the conflict is premature, um, and I think it's too ambitious. And I think if forced down the throat of Yemenis, it will be counterproductive, uh, short term and long term. Specifically on the role of the UN envoy, I don't even see him capable of putting off fires that are so crucial to put off, such as, for example, the Im- uh, imprisonment of women or the issue of the planting of landmines, the issue of lifting the siege on ties, which was a very essential component of the Stockholm Agreement. There are very little steps that, you know, there are some steps that he could take, um, and, and, and these are important steps uh, to build confidence among, among the parties, and he could certainly push in that direction. and. We just don't see that happening. I think it would be very helpful at this stage if he can uh, focus his attention in um, working on behalf of Yemeni people uh, to ensure that all parties are not affected by this conflict and all parties are not brutalized by this conflict. and to just focus on one part, which we have seen was just a complete focus on uh, civilians in Houthi areas, is completely, you know, completely damages the, the reputation of the United Nations that just marginalizes uh, uh, civilians in non-Houthi areas. This has got to stop. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Nedwa, and thank you, um, uh, Fatma, and thanks all for uh, uh, for listening to us and for uh, tuning in. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as we did. Uh, for those who want to read uh, in more depth about the topics we covered, we put links to uh, any research or publications that we have uh, mentioned in the episode uh, notes. Uh, if you want to stay Uh, Up to date with the Oxford Research Group work, please subscribe to uh, our newsletter by clicking on the bottom at the top of the page. Um, You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at uh, ORG Info. We look forward to you joining us soon and we look forward to more conversations uh, about Yemen. Thank you so much. And uh, at this time of COVID-19, stay healthy and safe, everyone. And um, thank you. Thank you again.